Hey, this is the Proactive Podcast here in downtown Calgary. We talk about health sciences and break down what is really the most relevant thing to anybody in the world, the human body. My name's Dr. Matthew Jurgis. I'm the host of the show and also a chiropractor. Next, Dr. Alex Fitzowicz. I'm a chiropractor. Alongside us, we've got a new guest to the show. His name is Alex Paquin. He is a foot and gait specialist, um, also known as a pedorthist. Alex, tell me about yourself. Yeah, my name is Alex Paquin, uh, based at Court DBC. I'm uh, uh, the owner of Peak Orthotics. Uh, so we manufacture orthotics for uh, health clinics and uh, daily practitioners throughout uh, British Columbia, Alberta. The orthist, well, I'm a biomechanical specialist of the lower limb. Um, I focus on gait alignment and uh, accommodating for uh, various pathologies that can arise in the lower limb. Gotcha. Yeah, so I've been super excited for this podcast, especially um, being in our field as kind of athlete-centered chiropractors, this the foot and the, the kind of lower limbs are definitely, I would say, the most complex like biomechanical system in the body. And it really takes a specialist to break this down to, to a science. So before we break down this human machinery, I just wanted to clear up the confusion between a pedorthist, podiatrist, seem kind of similar, maybe a little different. Can you tell me about that? Sure. Well, the pedorthist, uh, you know, from, from the base, we're, we're kicking from the specialty of shoes and the act of walking. Um, so we are specialists in how the gait functions um, and how to align it better and how to accommodate for different, you know, the bone deformities that can arise and, and uh, you know, slowing down pronation through phases of gait, that kind of thing. Uh, podiatrist is more um, along the lines of, you know, their specialty can also be in, in, you know, they do some gait and biomechanical alignment, but also, you know, more in skin disorders, uh, nerve, uh, blood flow, um, you know, more into internal soft tissues, where muscle and bones sort of thing. Gotcha. Like, yeah. Cool, cool. But, yeah, it's all, it's all about specialty of, of the lower limb nonetheless. Okay, cool. So you actually get to break this down from a more physics and mechanical standpoint, which is really our area of interest. So as the owner of Peak Orthotics, you've been doing this for a while. Um, how do we know, how does a patient know when they could benefit from this support system? separated into a couple of different things if that's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, The orthotics, we have to understand that a general term for foot orthotics, um, that there's a bunch of different functions within that, right? So we have typically what's called a functional foot orthotic, uh, which is a device that corrects gait and angles. Um, And then there's the accommodative foot orthotic, which 
uh, its function is to not correct gait, but to accommodate for different pressure points and bring more comfort to the patient. Um, this is two very different patients um, and different uses. Um, we looked at this and um, through like countless years of, of trial and error uh, and, and building upon what we learned, uh, we created a device that's more rehab specific. So we call it the peak rehab dynamic foot orthotic. Um, so you end up having elements of some accommodative elements and some uh, functional elements because we do correct gait with it and some new elements that have been brought to the table uh, by making the orthotic flex in a certain way, which I can demonstrate later, um, that, you know, encourage uh, extrinsic flexors to be activated through gait. So we've got three different types of devices for three different types of patients. Um, so when, so to go back to your questions, when does a person need an orthotic? Well, it could be a lot of different factors that come in. Mm -hmm. You would have, you know, your, your one example would be your, your elderly patient that would come in uh, with, uh, you know, rheumatoid arthritis or, or osteoarthritis uh, into the lower limb. And, you know, for that patient, our goal would be to get that patient walking more comfortably so they can enjoy a better quality of life, walking more often and stimulating more blood flow and staying healthier and longer, hopefully. Uh, so that would be the, the one accommodative kind of example. Then for a rehab um, type patient, then you would have, it doesn't even need to come from the knee, it could uh, come from the foot, it could be uh, coming from the knee or from the hip, uh, and they uh, come to a practitioner and say they, they have uh, a knee issue and, and you know, perhaps some patellar tracking issues and pain uh, underneath the kneecap, and you're looking at the whole alignment, and your first visual clue would be, oh, this person's standing pretty aggressively on a genovalgum uh, sort of knock knee angle. Um, and so then you have a look deeper into the foot and realize that that patient's uh, pronating quite heavily, which is, you know, the flattening of the arch, more or less. And this person's uh, compensating by, by uh, externally rotating their legs and standing a bit of a, on a duck stance. Uh, so you look at that patient and then realize that the strength of the, you know, the, uh, the glutes are, are a little bit weaker, vastus uh, medialis is a little bit weaker, looking a bit deeper into it, you're, you're realizing that there's not much uh, strength into uh, the big toe flexor, um, it's hard for that person to balance on the toes, that kind of thing. Um, so we decided, decided to go for a rehab treatment plan, and that would involve um, some exercises, some stretches, and um, some uh, some rehab for orthotic to, to help stimulate those muscles when they were in shoes. Um, so, mm -hmm. see what I'm saying? That it could be like two very different right. patients, uh, and and so when does that need come in for an orthotic? Um, it's most people treat it like there's a problem that comes up, then let's fix it. Right. Rather than being proactive about it, um, I'd rather see people be proactive about it, and 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 we look into these these things before the, the real problems come in. But 
often it comes from, there's a problem, so let's fix it. Right, right. And I think that's one of the things that kind of separates your product from the pack or kind of surprised me when I learned about peak orthotics and, you know, obviously we fit people uh, for those orthotics is the idea of this is an instrument you can use to rehabilitate gait. Um, and obviously that might not be the answer for everyone. Some people have, you know, congenital malformations or whatever it may be, but um, for a lot of people, this can be a tool to, to as a fix, to help them make a fix. Sorry about that. Oh, no, it's all good. It's all good. Yeah, I think, I, I think that's a great point. Like, you know, our overall approach is very similar to your overall approach in that we want to give people the tools to do it on their own. We just give them a little bit of help. And um, maybe you can explain how the functional side of the functional rehab orthotic works. Um, he's already explained this to us when we first started doing orthotics and everything like that, and it's really cool. Um, and I know for myself, I really didn't fully understand the way that the muscles in the lower leg really help support the muscles in the foot and keep some of that structure. So I don't know if you can go into a little bit about that. For sure, for sure, absolutely. Um, well, that's, okay, so let's start by rehab orthotic and how to sum it up and how it's gonna work. Um, well, actually, no, let's start by the actual biomechanics of the foot. Um, are, are we recording video as well? Or this is uh, no, it's purely audio, sorry. Good. Should have. <laughs> <Should've Okay. kept. laughs> I'll just use this as like the football model for, for you and I so we can go through it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we have to look at how gate function first, right? So uh, because we uh, invented shoes, mankind, uh, humankind invented shoes, now we started to walk a little bit differently than if we were walking bare feet everywhere. Uh, the barefoot walk traditionally. Um, over soft, uneven ground would have been, you know, midfoot to forefoot striking pretty much all the time because you're walking light and you're trying to be light, you know, hunting, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, now the gait is more um, with the shoes. It went to a heel first, to a mid, uh, to a for, uh, to a, a mid stance, to a forefoot loading, to a push off, right? So it's a heel to toe. Mm -hmm. uh, rocker motion of the gait. Uh, so what happens is um, you've got the muscles that are um, propulsing you forward and holding the arch up. You've got tibialis posterior, um, you've got flexor lucis longus, and you've got flexor digitorum longus. Those are your extrinsic flexor group, um, the main ones, um, and the prime inverters. And uh, you've got the way that they're, you know, obviously there's tons of intrinsic foot muscles, I'm not going to name them all, um, that help with this whole function. Um, and there's the peroneal muscles as well that, that evert the foot and still propulse you forward. Like this whole structure of the foot, basically, uh, when you're talking about flexor uh, lucis longus, flexor digitorum longus, uh, they lever against the calcaneal shelf and then uh, lever behind the medial manolus and attached to the lateral calf muscle underneath the gastrocnemius. Mm -hmm. So 
these muscles by levering here actually keep on, on the calcaneal shelf keep the arch from collapsing. Um, so in gait, when your heels striking first and then going to mid stance, their action works as they're trying to slow down and stabilize. So they're working eccentrically first, isometrically to stabilize, then a concentric pull to propulse forward. So they're working essentially backwards, trying to slow it down, which is the hardest load for a muscle to hold, yeah. is to slow, slow it down. Uh, so a lengthening muscle, right? It's kind of like catching a baseball or a heavy ball and trying to slow it down. I mean, your chances of injury are much greater when you're actually trying to catch it versus trying to throw it. Right. Uh, so, so if we go back to the foot, um, so there, the, the muscles to recap are the, the, east, uh, the, uh, the flexors uh, are trying to slow it down, stabilize, and then contract to propulse forward. So, those muscles are naturally weak in the North American population. Um, that is a normal thing because for the simple reason that most everybody has been wearing shoes since they were little babies. So this is, why this is bad? Well, this is bad because you, you put your toes all together with very little action for the whole day for years and years and years and years and years. So it's just normal for those muscles to go mainly dormant. You know, they're not being activated in the way that they should if we were to challenge it more with a barefoot walk. So this is why I'm so for, and I'm, I'm absolutely all for it for barefoot walkers and barefoot runners. It's just that yeah. people usually do too much too quick. We'll go back to that later. Um, so. Now that we know a little bit about how the, the, the muscles actually work and hold up the foot and which muscles do get weak, um, that's important to, to get them stronger. Now, going back to the orthotic, um, so a traditional orthotic um, and a functional orthotic, uh, when you're trying to correct gait, its job is to slow down that pronation of the subtail joint when it happens. So, so basically, like, people will heel strike the mid stance, and then the muscles won't be strong enough, and then that arch is going to collapse. Yeah. So, the traditional role of the orthotic is to support the foot so this doesn't happen as much. The role of the rehab orthotic from heel strike to mid stance is actually the same goal as a traditional orthotic, as a functional orthotic. Perhaps it's exaggerated a little bit in the rear foot. Um, we like to really support all the way to the navicular to make sure that we slow down that pronation um, so then when the body's weight is over top of the foot at mid-stance, that we're hopefully close to neutral. It depends on the steps, obviously, some, you know, if you're dealing with different angles, and, uh, but uh, what we want to do different ground angles, I mean, but what we want to do is, generally speaking, you know, body's weight's over top of the, the, the midline, and we're at subtail neutral. This is going to create an optimal sort of angle for us to 
put the foot in a position of power to toe off. So now the rehab orthotic, the way it works, is it's not an actual arch support. So the arch actually drops quicker um, than the uh, what what the foot angle is and what the actual arch is. So what you end up having is sort of your proprioceptor muscles kick in and your big toe and your first ray, um, the ball of the foot wants to make contact to that orthotic. Mm-hmm. So it will bring the first ray down and will put, be putting you in a position of power where you, you the, the center of the weight is going to be over top of the over tip of the big toe mm-hmm. so you can toe off in a straighter angle. So to sum it up in the simplest terms that I can, the rehab orthotic is a rear foot um, stabilizer, yeah, but rear foot mobilizer. Gotcha. So challenges the it, it sort of destabilizes the forefoot a little bit, and makes it ebert a little bit, uh, ebert uh, the mid tarsal joint a little bit quicker uh, than traditional orthotics. So it makes the foot actually work a bit, you know, rather than, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, when you're, when you're walking in dirt barefoot and stuff, your foot actually is working to kind of stabilize and slow down that movement, absorb some of the impact. Um, and, and that's where this really has a distinct way of training the foot. That's right, exactly. So obviously the best way is to do it barefoot. Um, the... Not everybody's going to get there, and it would it will take time for everybody to get there if we were all to try. Um, but the rehab orthotic is the solution for us that, that we created um, for when we're actually when we are wearing shoes. Mm-hmm. We're, if we have to wear shoes, this is the best device that we have that's going to bridge that gap between the untrained over pronator foot to the barefoot runner. Yeah, and I think this is why this topic I find is so incredibly interesting and the more I've looked into it is like we've fundamentally have changed the way we walk. Like how we're walking today is actually, I mean, arguably not correct. But I mean, we've really, we've really started relying on on this new way of walking and, and I think it's really interesting that the consensus out there of what the proper running form is or what the proper striking is. Um, there's, there's a lot of disagreement out there, isn't there? Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's uh, a volatile subject. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the matter is, I don't think there's a correct way to do it. Um, I believe that there is a way to like, if your muscle mass is balanced, over the whole leg, the tie of the leg, and you have a balanced leg and balanced knee joint and everything is flexing and, and properly and has the proper range of motion um, and you have strength to hold your joints together, then is it a bad gait? No, there's no such a thing as that. It's just that you know there's a series of compensations that create imbalances. Yeah. And that's where the problem is. You know, when muscle imbalances, one muscle gets too tight, one muscle gets too loose, therefore you start having a joint that tracks wrong subluxes, et cetera, et cetera. 
So I was w- wondering for our listeners, if you could give us just a brief idea what the different schools of thought, you know, maybe there's not a correct one, but there's definitely different schools of thought in terms of like heel, striking. Uh, heel striking, midfoot striking, and maybe even forefoot striking. Um, is there strengths and in, in weaknesses you can point out kind of overall or... Or, or at least even just like, like you said, it really depends on, um, you know, the anatomy, all of that kind of stuff. They're different strengths and weaknesses. Even if you could just give us like kind of a prototype, like if these muscle groups are strong, yeah, you can maybe do midfoot striking or, or whatever kind of thing. Well, obviously the more forefoot striking that is involved, the, uh, the more you actually increase on the, uh, uh, the load that's going to be brought to the, uh, the extrinsic flexors. Um, yeah, because the lever arm's longer, essentially. Like, it, it, if it's the whole length of the foot, then those muscles have to work harder. Makes sense. That's right. So you're going to have to have a stronger uh, foot, a stronger leg, a stronger calf to be able to, to, to withstand um, the, these impacts that are going to come. Like, I mean, there's just more force to the actual system. Yeah. Um, like... Nobody's going to go out there and walk on pavement, even run on pavement, and, and forefoot strike. Like, it's just not, like, it's not going to be a, a very comfortable or efficient gait. Yeah. Uh, naturally, gait just simply happens because we try to walk as efficiently as possible. So just with everybody's going to readjust their own gait to accommodate for anything that's hard and go around anything that's hard. For example, your, your typical ankle joint that's too tight due to uh, gastroxoleus and hamstring being too tight, right? So the, the ankle joint doesn't get quite as much dorsiflexion as it needs for technically proper gait. So the body simply cuts a shortcut and externally rotates the leg and pronates the subtalar. So then all of a sudden that, that, that person doesn't have to, to work as hard and can have uh, what seems to be an efficient gait. So um, I, I think like different gait types are all related to A, what you're wearing as shoes and B, where you're running or walking. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have a way different gait if you are running with barefoot runners in a pretty rough trail. I'm very going to be a lot more likely as you're jogging along to be forced forward with striking. Right? Because you're going to be like adjusting for like you know the forefoot's got it's got way more range into the midtarsal to adjust for different ground variations. Right. Um, heel. Right? Heel's a single point, your forefoot has got you know the whole range of the midtarsal to work with. Um, so you've got, you've got way more stability there. Um, so, and you know, somebody that's gonna have a way different gait if they're wearing uh, um, dress shoes and they're walking downtown Calgary to go from a meeting to a meeting, right? It's okay. just gonna be a, a vastly different gait. So, so, and that's related to ground surface contact, proprioceptors, and what they're actually wearing. Gotcha. Right? So, so this it, is where like, we try to bring a little bit of the barefoot element 
back into the shoot mm-hmm. and use it now without it. it this is trying to thought there. So you're almost looking at it as like, you know, heel striking isn't necessarily wrong or this isn't necessarily wrong. It's a, an adaptation to uh, your environment, I guess, right? So, I mean, nowadays there's kind of two big factors that people have to work around is one, shoes, but two, concrete. We're not walking on soft surfaces anymore, so um, the, the heel strike makes sense. But I guess... I'm guessing, and if you look at like a tribe in Africa untouched by society, you're going to see a lot more of that midfoot, forefoot strike, correct? Exactly. No shoes involved, way stronger feet. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's amazing if you, uh, like the, from the travels that I've done and just noticing in, in, in you know, less fortunate countries, how much stronger their feet actually are. It's amazing. It's that- amazing. Be way more. I once saw a guy climbing a rock face, uh, bare feet, and I could, I couldn't even <laughs> it with my rock shoes. With my rock shoes, and you know, like wow. start, start uh, rubber on there, like pretty sticky. You know, it's pretty hard to actually feel the sharpness of the limestone. And the sharpness of the limestone is just too sharp on that one. And uh, um, yeah, like. This guy was climbing their feet. No problem. Nuts. Nuts. <laughs> it, yeah, it's insane to think, you know, at some point our feet were enough to traverse the world as it is, which is, you yeah, know, everything. Danger and hazards yeah. everywhere you look. Yeah. Um, super foot, cool. Invented, right? Mm-hmm. So, maybe we did the bad footwear for protection, or perhaps it was some, some you know, uh, war elements to it that. You know, life got tougher and they needed to adjust for something. But yeah, like footwear got invented and now we're dealing with the aftermath of that and trying to kind of patch it up backwards. But I'm trying to be a little bit more proactive about it and bring some of that muscle stimulation element. Yeah. And, and something we always kind of teach our patients is, you know, whether it's a knee brace or a back brace or any kind of external support, it can be a good tool to get you out of pain or to go into a kind of, you know, try something you're not 100% comfortable with. Maybe you have some knee trauma, you want to go skiing or, um, but anytime you add that external support, you, you're basically getting a dependency to it and your internal support systems start to shut down. So a, a really cool concept and when we're you know moving forward in society it's all about making life easier and working less and um people don't realize that you're essentially making your your body weaker that's right that's right even in such simple things as like if you look at footwear as like um you know an excessive rocker shoe i mean this makes propulsing easier um there's definitely instances of what we're, I'll use a, a rock and soul, don't get me wrong. I mean, some people really need it. Uh, however, generally speaking, the, you know, a, a, a huge rock and soul will reduce the need for you to use your extrinsic flexors to propulse forward. Mm-hmm. Right? Which, which is actually interesting because back probably about 10 years ago, maybe 10, 15 years ago now, when they were first coming out with those rocker shoes, 
the idea was that they somehow like smoothed out your gait and you could use your muscles more efficiently. And like, I remember, forget the exact brand, but they were like toning shoes. Like they were like, you know, Mm -hmm. like what men and women wore to like lose weight in their legs specifically. And then I remember about like five, like probably about five years after those had initially come out, they already had been doing research and, you know, like EMG study, that kind of stuff. And they found that those are actually like the absolute worst shoes, like muscle activation went through the floor, like everything was so much worse, but they were comfortable, people liked them, they thought they helped them lose weight. And so it's really interesting how that shifts in as little as like five years sometimes. Oh, for sure. I mean, in the footwear world, it's so so fashion oriented in the first place. Yeah. Um, Big challenge for, uh, you know, health professionals Absolutely, you know, like you see, you know, see people walking in with uh, with a problem, and they are complaining about that problem. But yet, you look at what they're wearing to come to the clinic, <laughs> and we have a bit of a chat. <laughs> you know, we got we got to have a chat about their shoes. Oh. We have to talk about shoes, you know. Right. So, yeah. So that's always a point of uh, that I find myself that I'm doing quite a bit of education on, mm-hmm. for sure. And that's that's part of it too. Is people don't really know any better a lot of times you know like there are some shoes that are kind of okay and then there's some shoes like high heels is a perfect example like so bad in so many different ways and so many people wear them for hours a day for years on end like a little bit of education there can actually go a long way to just be like hey maybe ditch the high heels or try this or try that kind of thing and the earlier the better, for sure. Unfortunately, it's it's kind of like expected in society. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Certain jobs and things, and, and that's a, that's a sad thing, because um, it, it really does harm to the body uh, long term. You know, hard to reverse. Uh, sometimes leading into really bad pathologies that require surgery, et cetera, et cetera. And, totally. Uh, you know, some people think like. Oh yeah, I'll just get it fixed. I mean, let's never underestimate how intrusive a foot surgery can be to your health. Like it's yeah. uh, in some cases very necessary, of course. Um, but generally speaking, if you can avoid it, please do. I mean, it's it's months off your feet that you're going to be on crutches, non-weight-bearing. Uh, I mean, right there, that is that is a huge like weight on the negative side to your health, right? So, yeah, um, yeah and, and the, the rehab the rehab route after that is really long. So I would really rather catch something earlier on, be able to compensate for it, and send that patient in the right direction, and we can help correcting things before they get bad. 100%. And not only the issues that arise in the foot, but like, as chiropractors, you know, we know that it's causing more compressive forces in, in the knees, um, but also like your hips, especially like just having, just being in a kind of constant state of hip flexion, just shuts off your abs, um, can shut off your glutes. And, and I, the way I kind of understood it is like people's feet are too far ahead of them or people's legs are too far ahead of them. They're never really extending through their pelvis. And it really just propagates through the whole body. The whole curvature of the spine gets completely thrown off. So as much as heel striking is adaptive for us walking on concrete, it's like, well, it 
kind of screws up the whole alignment of the spine and and everything associated with it. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, it's this is where like you know uh, people are always a little bit surprised when um, you know it's it's not about really a, a foot of, dynamic foot robotic is not about um, just the foot problems. It's it could be you know coming from from the knee, the hip, uh, you know, excessive. Uh, it, it creates like you were saying, like people don't. Um, they can never fully extend through the hip. Well, that creates tight hip flexors, and you know SI joint problems, and et cetera, et cetera, and, and uh, you know excessive lumbar curvature, lordosis, creating you know a, a, a lot of the problems that you're familiar with that you're seeing every day. Um, it's just it's amazing on how the correction of the foot will go right. Like the immediate one is to the like it just reduces the valgus loading of the knee, and you know we, we're living in a day and age where we we got like so many sports that actually increase that valgus load and make that knee joint prone for injury. I'll just throw an example there. Uh, uh, you know, alpine skiing. Um, alpine skiing is a sport that, like, even the, the the footwear that we've created, the ski boot, forces the foot into a valgus load, you know, the, the inverted overlap of a front entry boot, when you clip the instep buckle, it will absolutely put so much pressure on that metatarsal joint in the subdale, it will force the foot into a valgus load. So that goes immediately into the tibia. The tibia rotates uh, inward, you know, uh, a medial rotation of the tibia, which creates a valgus load to the knee. Now add the turn to that, and you're increasing that valgus load. So um, for our listeners out there that don't know what a valgus load is, it's basically um, rotating the knee internally excessively as you're doing an activity. Um, so you can just imagine somebody that's not knee and going further into a not knee a, a frame style stance. Um, yeah, so <laughs> yeah. you're into a ski turn. I mean, you know, there, there's a reason why, you know, ACL injuries are the number one injury in skiing. It's literally caused by the pelvis load of the knee um, that's caused by the ski loop. Right. And, and for our listeners, that's imagine your knees are pointing inwards, right? Like you're literally knocking your knees together. Exactly. Exactly. So, that's, um, that's really interesting, actually, that you say that. Because I've always known that skiing, not that it's bad for your knees, but like that's how you get a lot of injuries, especially the classic, like, ACL, MCL, medial meniscus tear. And I always thought that, that was more of an issue with keeping the tibia like anteriorly to posteriorly aligned. And the fact that if, like if you imagine you're on a ski boot and if you were to fall down onto your butt while your shins were still vertical, like obviously like that's an ACL tear, that, that shin goes forward, that's how you do it. But I had no idea that it's much more of the rotational force through the knee. That makes total sense. Like the yeah. knee, the knee, it rotates a little, but it's really supposed to be a hinge. So if you're getting a lot of pressure on that one side and that rotation, like that's that's just a recipe for disaster, especially if the foot's weak, especially if the ski boot's tight, like makes tons of sense to me. Well, and add to that that your uh, inside quadricep muscle, the VMO, uh, the 
Vastus medialis is going to be like the more knock-kneed of a stance that you are, the more that muscle, the, the, the less that it gets uh, challenged and the weaker that it gets. Um, same with the hamstring, same with the glute. And you end up having a really tight IT band. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which tries to compensate and straighten things out, which ends up torquing the patella to the outside, creating that extra friction and a lot of the pain that people are, are initially feeling into that patella femoral syndrome. I love that you were able to break that down because it's something I've known, but it's kind of hard to wrap your head around that domino effect, right? Like your foot. You, you don't have that support, your, your arch drops, that turns your, your tibia inwards, that turns your knees inwards, that's gonna shut off your, you know, VML, VMO, shut off the glutes, and then it's, you know, everybody you, you look at, they just got the tightest lateral quads, tightest IT band, um, and it's just the most common issue. That's right, that's right. So a, a lot of it is uh, initiated by the foot stance and posture. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's actually, you know, with body awareness, the right um, exercises, um, and you know, the, the right device under the foot to help out in situations where, you know, you can't think about your feet, like such a way when you're in footwear, or you know, if you're in in, in ski boots, you're definitely not thinking about your feet if they don't hurt. <laughs> you know, always going to be thinking about your foot, but. Um, so the main idea is to, to, to give it the proper uh, uh, support structure underneath, make your, your muscles work the way that they should, and then rebalance the whole leg. I mean, we're talking about muscle balancing the whole, and how it, that relates to the optimal gait. Well, you know, going back to that, I don't think there's like such a thing as an optimal gait. I think this, the only thing that we should look for is proper muscle balancing for the joints to work properly. Right. Yeah. So, so I, I had a question. Um, obviously, you're the foot guy because we're chiros. We're like the hip and spine and pelvis guys. So it's always like a chicken and the egg scenario. Like, is it the feet causing issues in the hips? Is it the hips causing issues in the feet? Like, is in a hypothetical scenario, <clears throat> would you be able to strengthen the hips enough to stabilize the pelvis? and go all the way down into the knee, into the foot, all that kind of stuff? Or is it really just a ground up that you need that, you need that base of support to, to help you? Great question. It's, it's an amazing question. Um, I personally like the ground up approach for one reason is it's easy to teach myself on how to do it. Mm. So it, then it's easy for me to teach um, somebody else how, which muscles to, to target first and how to adjust the stance from the ground up to correct, right? So mm -hmm. for, for instance, a uh, quick example of that. So I'll line up somebody on the hardwood floor with two lines and I'll use the heel um, and I'll, I'll use them like in the regular stance. So like, let's just say that this patient's an overpronator. So they're externally rotated uh, in their, their just their standing stance, okay? Um, so, uh, I line up the heels so they're, you know, um, on two lines and then I'll show them how to internally rotate their feet so the midline is not the big toe 
at, at the tip of the, you know, in this land. Mm-hmm. Um, and go for in between the second and third metatarsal heads. Yeah. So by going to that angle, they feel extremely knocking all of a sudden. Right? So all I've got to do is flex the knees forward a little bit and then show them how to externally rotate the knee. Right. Which immediately brings up the arch. Yeah. So by tibial torsion, I show them by rotating the tibia outwards, rotating the knee outwards, and almost thinking like they've got like um, a little uh, ball under in between the knees to kind of separate them. From there, it is much easier to show them to stand a little bit more on the forefoot and then to uh, be able to straighten the pelvis and open the pelvis. Right. By opening the pelvis, then I've got a flatter lumbar curve. Mm-hmm. And by having a flatter lumbar curve, it's now much easier for somebody to stand straighter and the shoulders fall back and the neck falls into less of a, a reverse curve, you know, depending on how, how uh, exaggerated the case is. But basically, the, the neck straightens, the, back, the upper back straightens, the lower back straightens, everything straightens from that hip stance that you were describing before. Yeah. It's so funny you you kind of see it that way as like this is a, an easier area for me to tackle where for us I, I know for me especially and I'm assuming for Alex it's yeah. like when we're working at the hips it's like if I got to pick my battles like I want to work the hips because that's what I know <laughs> we, we, yeah we find it and also there's these big powerful muscles that we can have more of a profound effect on in our eyes and uh, it's a little bit easier for us to try and correct the pelvis and make that effect by working on the tissues and working on the hips and the, and the lumbar spine. Um, but for you, yeah, it's, you're, you're the expert on feet and that's an easier thing for you to tackle. And it, it makes perfect sense to me. Like just the way you describe it to teach a patient to not internally rotate those tibias and like provide that structure to lift those naviculars. Like that is way, way, way easier than me trying to explain like some way to adduct the hip or like squeeze the glutes. Like there's no way that a patient's going to kind of put two and two together and get that same kind of foot engagement. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think it's, it's easier for them to be like, you know, once they get that solid, it's like, okay, squeeze here, push out here, externally rotate your hip. Like that makes more sense. But for the tibia itself, like I don't even know how I would explain to do it, to do it other than the way that you just showed us how to do it. So yeah. In the way um, to do it. Next time, just try, try to just literally just rotate the knees out. You know, like once you've got, the, you need to have the proper foot stance first, right? Right. But once you foot stance, uh, using the the midline between the second and third mat heads, um, then from there, just flex the knee forward a little bit and just externally rotate the knee. Totally. Right? And you get them to straighten a little bit, straighten that knee back, and then and then. Uh, extend and open up the hip joint. Yeah. And this job, our jobs is totally about like, do you know the best cues for someone? Yeah. Right. Cause this is something you, we could go in hours explaining how this Seriously. affects the biomechanics. But if you just tell someone, Hey, like get your knees right over this, you know, met head and push them out, push them out yeah. slightly. It's like, Oh, correction in every part there, of the spine. Yeah. Over the third toe. Yeah. That's, oh, the cue. that's it. Right. Yeah, and that's, and that's way more simple than trying to explain, like, 
all these complex interrelations of mechanics that we're talking about, like yeah. you're not going to be able, as soon as you push your knees out, you're going to activate the hips, like period, done. Yeah. Super easy to get out in the weeds when you're trying to explain something when it doesn't have to be that complicated. Yeah. Um, That's for one challenge of both our professions is always yes. to be able to uh, simply, efficiently break it down into understandable words and, and doable cues, right? Yeah. So, for sure, for sure. No, this is the okay. Yeah, go ahead on the next question. Yeah, I can see you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm just. There's so many questions that kind of bubble up in my head. Um, but the other thing I just wanted to quickly mention is, you know, as far as having that, we live in a world where comfort is king and, and that comfort causes a lot of weaknesses in our body. Uh, and when we're working with the hips, it's like we're sitting, people sit for eight to 10 hours a day easily, easily. which causes so much hip flexion, so much tightness in the hip flexors. That it's kind of analogous to wearing these super, super supportive shoes, right? It's a comfort thing. And uh, that's that's a main issue at the hip that we try to correct. Yeah, yeah, the hip is a complex one and it's uh, it's uh, it's definitely, it can be a problem for, for a lot of people, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so I, I kinda wanna get your take on this, on the term overpronation syndrome is, that an oversimplification or do people kind of typically fall into the same syndrome and it's just kind of an extent and maybe there's other variables that are contributing to that syndrome but is it more of a on a scale of how much do we deal with this or is, is that term just too much of a blanket term? Well, it's, it's a bit of a blanket term but at the same time it is describing what originally causes the different pathologies that show up. Um, for example, it, like I, I mean, you know, you can have so an overpronator um, that's developed a navicular drop and uh, posterior uh, tibialis tendon dysfunction, or you can have an overpronator that developed how it's obvious deformation, um, et cetera, et cetera. So it starts by the overpronation bracket, and then where does it go from there? Or do we have any external or, or extra complications with that foot? Um, it could be overpronation that would um, start the cause of uh, a patellofemoral syndrome of the knee, or, you know, meniscus tear, mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so to answer your question um, a little bit clearer, no, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a necessary term. Like, I'll, I'll use it, and, and sometimes I'll, I'll be discussing a patient's case, and I, I find, like, you know, I'll write it in my, my goals for the treatment plan, and you know, I'll find myself using the same words and it's almost like a little bit annoying, like, okay, here we go again. I want to slow down the pronation and I want to stabilize the, 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 the hypermobility of the subtalar joint. That, you know, you know, it happens very often that I write these words. Yeah. <laughs> Is it overstated? No, I really do think that it's just that common. Right. Um, so 
I mean, my own guesstimate, this is from like, you know, over 20 years in the field um, and living on this earth and noting what I'm seeing around me uh, is, and then working with, you know, now over 250 practitioners, um, this general consensus that it's about three quarters of the North American population would be mm-hmm. classified as overpronators at mid sense. Yeah. So three out of four that would walk into your door, we do a test and we take their shoes off and we put them in shorts so we can see the knee and or ideally leggings so you can see, you know, hip, knee down. It would just like have a quick look and just to see how is the calcaneal stance looking? Is it uh, vertical? Is it inverted or is it inverted? Well, from what I've noted, and this is just a guesstimate, but um, it's about 75% would be um, on an inverted calcaneal stance and somewhat overpronating at mid stance. You'd have about uh, 15% of people that would classify like within and between brackets normal limits. Uh, and then you'd have about 10% that would be more on the other side, in the high arch kind of more rigid type foot structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, we call those cascades. Uh, so uh, definitely more rare, uh, still quite common at 10%, um, but that has completely different implications and a different treatment plan and uh, different challenges that come along with, with the cases like that. Gotcha. For sure. Yeah. So it's almost, uh, the overpronation syndrome is almost a constant. It's just like, how is this going to manifest problematically in a lot of ways? Exactly. Exactly. So then you look at, well, you know, first of all, has there been any complaints? You know, are we talking about plantar fasciitis symptoms? Are we talking about, you know, knee pain, back pain, whatever it might be. So we start looking at the whole sense mm-hmm. and see where, um, this might be problem, problematic in the future or is it already problematic and we're trying to compensate for it. Yeah. Yeah. And I just wanted to touch on one thing you said and that's 15% of the population as an estimate actually gets it right, which is crazy. Surprisingly mm-hmm. low. Surprisingly low. low. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, get it right is a big thing. Oh, you didn't say that. Oh, didn't say yeah, that. that's right. That's, that's right. me making an assumption. 15% not that In bad. the normal. <laughs> but it's, it's funny that normal is an uncommon thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or what we consider normal. Seriously. Um, I would say, uh, like, instead of normal, I would rather use um, the word efficient. Mm. The, yeah. the, the joints work efficiently enough that it falls within the category of the joint is working properly. Mm-hmm. Not causing an imbalance. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, Pez Cavus, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, how do, how, is that just because typically these foot are, these feet are just so rigid that they overcorrect? It, it's, do you ever find that these intrinsic support or extrinsic support muscles are just working so hard or is it more of these feet are just so rigid and locked in and uh, these joints are just so kind of um, immobile? Where did, how do you find that? It is, it is 
the problem lies in joint restrict joint mobility restriction. So the foot in itself is a suspension mechanism. Right? So we can we can simplify it like if you look at an overpronating foot, you have a, a foot that's very, very mobile. Um, so mobility is not the problem there. They they have a great shock absorption. But the problem is is the tightness of the suspension here. We have a suspension that's too loose. Um, so the suspension's bogging me out if you're changing it in a mechanical perspective. Like just imagine you're you're looking at a car shock and like this shock is too soft and we're bottoming out every time I'm hitting a pothole. That's an overpronating foot. The opposite side of the spectrum, the Pascadis side, um, uh, you know, you've got tight peroneals, you've got tight uh, extrinsic flexors, you've got tight extensors. Um, the, the problem is, is there's no shock absorption. So you're dealing with direct shock transfer from heel to met head that gets transferred right off the leg. So this uh, foot, um, its problem is that it is very heavy on the points that it does actually load um, and not heavy at all on the other points. So um, you, we want to be able to redistribute that pressure load over the whole hunter aspect of the foot. Um, so generally how that's done is by... Um, so if you've got a very, just imagine you've got a very heavy heel spot and very heavy on the ball of the foot, for example, on uh, a first metatarsal head. So you would create a device that would be an accommodative device that would be, you know, a full arch support and even pressing into the arch actually a little bit more than that actual arch may be. So the idea is going to be um, to just yeah like don't have that principle if you like have a heavy pressure spot you would load the area surrounding the pressure spot and you would reduce the area of the actual highest point of pressure mm -hmm. um so by loading the mid arch you're offloading the first metatarsal head and you're offloading the heel um and then by you know you have to, to cut the heel really good and what we do on top of that is we make that orthotic flex a little bit um, so uh, from the arch down, so in a vertical flex fashion, so it gives that patient a little bit of like uh, sort of make do suspension um, would be how that, that actually works. So um, yeah, th those are actually typically the harder problems to deal with um, because you're dealing with restricted or, or rigid joints. Anytime it's, it's rigid, you're, you got a, a serious accommodation to, uh, to, uh, to accommodate. Gotcha. So, so yeah. qu question with that type of orthotic is if they do have like congenital um, malformation of their midfoot or whatever it is, the reason why they have that is due to the actual structure of their bones. Um, mm -hmm. Would you ever even make it a little bit higher? Like, are you trying to separate some of those joints in between the mid tarsals just to give it a little bit more movement? Or is it mostly just supporting the structure and offloading the hot spots kind of thing? Yeah, well, I mean, it all depends on the actual case. Mm -hmm. um, ideally, if you do have, like, you know, throughout the, the assessment, uh, I'll encourage highly to do, uh, you know, all sorts of different mid-tarsal manipulation and, and trying to get, uh, you know, the, 
uh, uh, genial forearm, the, the, the Liz Frank joint, to actually open up a little bit separately so you can work on like the, the raise, uh, you know, the, the Liz Frank height, uh, the mid tarsal uh, on both axes and, and the subfield and trying to get everything moving independently a little bit more and trying to incorporate it into my treatment plan to show this patient on how to uh, work their foot and we're going to have to work it every day to try to get some mobility back in the structure. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's a, it's, a, it's a tall order sometimes, for sure. Okay. So this would almost be where we would shine the most as chiropractors. We go in there and we just do everything to get all these individual bones moving, correct? That's right. Exactly. Exactly. And um, yeah, I'll try and, and offload some, some of these heavy areas that can, that can show up. And this is where, you know, we work as a team and uh, we can figure out, you know, exactly what we're trying to offload within the orthotic and uh, having, you know, the best communication as possible between the, uh, uh, the patient, the chiropractic team, and the, uh, and the pedorthist and, and trying to make sure that this device is going to be as efficient as possible for that patient to, to regain as much motion as possible. So in the, go ahead. To, uh, to answer your question, sorry, I, I kind of went away from your question. Um, yes, there is an element. So I'm taking an accommodative orthotic. So imagine that we're going to go and match that arch, right? But what we do is throughout the design software, we would bisect. Um, so the, 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 the foot uh, image, the, the 3D volumetric scan of the foot, would be standing on this orthotic within this, the software, and you can bisect it at any which way. Mm-hmm. So meaning you're taking a knife and slicing right right through, and then you have a look at the relationship between the foot and your orthotic. And right at about um, at the apex of the arch, we would lift that up a little bit to try and offload. So we're trying to yes, we're trying to pressure that arch a little bit, and. Um, to, yeah, to help display the tarsals, yes, um, but at the same time, to definitely help offloading first metatarsal, uh, the metatarsal group, and the uh, and the heel, or any other heavy spots that we need. Gotcha. Gotcha. So when, when we're going through, as you were talking about, the assessment for uh, assessing and fitting for orthotics, if they do have those restrictions within the bones of their foot, is it beneficial for like me and Dr. Matt to mobilize or adjust those in order to get more of like an optimal picture of what their foot can actually do? Or is it better to have them present exactly like they would in real life? This is how their foot is most of the time. Do the scan that way kind of thing. That's a very good question. Um, I... You know, it depends on, like, ideally for the optimal scan, you want the foot to be at the optimal position. Right. Mm-hmm. Optimal, like, whether it's, a, so let's back up just a little bit for, for our listeners. Uh, whether it's a uh, scan, a digital scan of the foot, uh, using uh, contact digitizing, using uh, laser scanning, or whether it's a plaster uh, cast or a foam box impression, the idea is always the same, is to get the best impression as possible of the foot to be able to translate it into the best uh, possible uh, functional orthotic for the patient. So, 
Um, but in, in this case, we're talking about uh, a scan. So um, I believe that it's always best to have the, the foot at its op optimal position uh, for for the uh, for the, the casting, whether it's a digital scan or, or not. Um, but the mid tarsals being mobilized for that patient at the same time, or is it going to change that foot structure that much? I think probably not. Probably not. Um, in terms of how it's going to measure, it's going to be pretty similar, except if you can bring mobility through manipulations to these joints, I think it's it's absolutely let's 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 do it for sure uh, before the scan or after the scan. Um, I, but I don't think that it would really change that that impression of the foot. I, I think that the foot is gonna, unless there's something completely locking, like locking it into like a huge orthogonalis kind of thing, and then you would unlock it, and somehow that would correct the fourth foot to rear foot relationship. In that case, um, depending on how strong you feel about. Uh, this instance reoccurring, and if you feel like you know this is likely to reoccur, then we're perhaps better off to take a scan or an impression in the typical everyday position if it's likely to reoccur. Gotcha. Did that answer the question? Yeah, no, that that was perfect. And from from my experience, that's <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> circle back, yeah. That's in in my experience, that's exactly what I find too. That if you if you do have a really rigid arch or something like that that's what the problem is anyway and so you're not really going to get that much motion out of it especially if you're just mobilizing for for a scan or whatever so yeah i agree with that and as far as mobilizing goes say we're working with an overpronator um and and generally we try to you know kind of seek and destroy when it comes to joint restrictions and issues do you think it's better to leave the Liz Frank joints alone, the subtalar joint alone, and leave that kind of joint stability alone, or if there is, you know, rigidity in that area and they still are an overpronator, do you find it's better to try and open those joints up? Absolutely open them up. Absolutely. Yeah, mobility is key. Um, obviously, having mobility, you, you wouldn't tackle that anyway, so you're only tackling it if there is a restriction. Right. Um, the, the, the typical, like, again, I'm doing brackets here, um, the typical case uh, often has actually a restriction in ankle joint dorsiflexion. Yeah. So this is a fully, like, let's tackle this as, mm -hmm. as soon as possible. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're a very common thing is that, um, you know, gastroc, soleus, and hamstring tightness will uh, pull on the Achilles tendon and, and create attraction, which will then, you know, then tension um, the intrinsic structure of the foot um, underneath in the plantar aspect, right? So if you have a uh, calcaneus, which is the heel bone, that's getting pulled upwards uh, by a tight Achilles tendon, you know, coming from the muscles that are above it, that are uh, that are pulling on it, um, then you end up having your heel bone that's sitting sort of further back and more stretched. So that, in terms of when you land on it, you're totally increasing 
the shock load to the tendons that are attached to that heel bone, and that go into your foot. So often people will describe uh, deep pain in, uh, that originates just uh, forward of the heel bone, um, mm-hmm. so just slightly distal, uh, but it, 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 it does often come from uh, the calcaneal oblique tendon and the deeper intrinsic structure um, that's so hard to get because it's like you got to go underneath all the layers to finally get that, that stabilizing tendon. Um, and, you know, that, that can, when it's really stretched, it can, you know, cause little ruptures, heel spurs, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. And um, that is very often caused by a restriction of, of dorsiflexion of the ankle. And patient compensates by externally rotating and uh, proning the subtalar joint. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so to mobilize that ankle joint from your end is key. Huge, yeah. And that's, that's really interesting that you describe that symptom presentation like that, because that's how the average person would describe plantar fasciitis to me. You know, they say it's not on the very tip of the heel, it's kind of a little bit in front, they might have some bone spurring, they might have some sharp pain, um, and I've actually fa- found that some people, when they do go in for treatment for plantar fasciitis, the person will just work mostly on the bottom of the foot, maybe a little bit on the top, but very rarely up into the leg. So it makes total sense that if all that stress is coming from those big muscles in the lower leg, what are you really going to do with that attachment point at the bottom of the foot? Mm-hmm. Right. So a lot of the stress I find is uh, uh, coming from a lack of strength in the extrinsic flexors that could be stabilizing that calcaneus, the, the, the heel bone. Um, so it stabilizes the, the, the amount of pronation that happens. So you reduce one part of the equation there, and then to be able to loosen the gastroc, soleus, and uh, all the other elements from coming from the top of the leg. So you're going to end up reducing that, that, that posterior tilt of the calcaneus, and you're going to end up stabilizing it from the, the strength of the flexors, greatly reducing the actual amount of tension that's within the plantar aspect of the foot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so cool. And, and for our listeners, like it's your calf being so tight will actually kind of flatten the foot and put more stress on the, on the bottom of that foot and those tissues that are meant to kind of hold the arch in. Exactly, exactly. So a typical uh, treatment would be um, for somebody that's suffering from plantar fasciitis syndrome uh, for, for symptoms. And I'll put plantar fasciitis in the tune bracket because I believe that that is an overused term. Yeah, um, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yeah, it would be, you know, some muscle lengthening work in the gastroxoleus calf muscle. Um, yes, perhaps some activation is, you know, uh, you know, if you have seen shockwave being used, like, I mean, like just to try and, you know, pinpoint the actual injury spot, trying to get some blood flow back in there and, and you know, maximize, uh, you know, healing efficiency. Um, but I would always prescribe, you know, total lifts and, and, and cap raises to try, to try and, and from the toe uh, to really focus on retraining those toe flexors mm-hmm. in order to stabilize that subtalar. And that's a big one. And then the orthotic treatment, what we're going to do is make sure that that heel, that, that orthotic is fully helping the heel as much as we can 
and trying to really minimize that, that, that uh, pronation uh, of the septile and then just max it so it has as much foot activation as possible for retraining those flexors. Yeah, cool. Mm-hmm. And, and I kind of wanted to pick your brain about the importance of our you know, big toe and its ability to extend. And I kind of have a side story for this. So I broke my foot in an unfortunate sledding accident. And so I kind of dealt with, you know, the break in my foot and, and, you know, healing from there. But afterwards, there was this whole several months where I'm still healing from all the compensations that went on because of it. Um, But really something that I am kind of concerned about is my toe is kind of healed in a, uh, like, in a valgus, my big toe, in a valgus way. And just having that like abductal valgus malformation now, I've noticed I have calluses forming and I'm hoping it's not gonna be, you know, altering my gait super traumatically. However, I know that it definitely can. Uh, wait, wait, what's your thoughts on that? Can I pick your brain a little there? You're screwed. I'm screwed, <laughs> I'm a freak. Cut it off. <laughs> <laughs> So, can you know, for listeners out there, can you still bring the big toe sort of uh, inwards uh, towards the midline? I can, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, if it still has mobility that way, um, then I would focus on uh, retraining your abductor muscle, abductor releases, your intrinsic muscle. Yeah. Um, so, it's a bit of a tall order because it's a, a, a funky one to, uh, to activate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can definitely do it nonetheless. Um, I would do it with, uh, you know, encourage the toe spreaders, um, you know, not in your shoes, but basically at sleep, um, to try to get as much uh, toe spacing as possible. Um, and I would encourage you to do uh, squats on a bozing type ball um, with, uh, you know, manually basically setting your big toe to where you want it to be as far as possible and then to do squats that are a little bit more onto your toes Mm -hmm. um you can lift up the heel if you want um to to aid that angle and keep yourself balanced and uh that would uh be the start of like recuperating the proper muscles for for uh for straightening out the the house in terms of orthotic treatment um Perhaps adding a um, a little post uh, underneath your uh, underneath your first metatarsal head to lifting it up a little bit would change a little bit on how that would sit. So instead of requiring it to flex so deeply and 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 finish in a abductor valgus uh, position, uh, we would um, lift up the first metatarsal head just a little bit basically slightly flex the joint um, to require less dorsiflexing so you don't end up in the uh, adductivalgus uh, position. Okay. Wow. So, yeah. so that's almost like the, the first thing that came to my mind is like when weightlifters wear shoe, shoes with heels, it's to kind of shift all their weight forward, 
to essentially give them like extra dorsiflexion range. So it'd be pretty much pretty much the same thing with him. If, if you just lift that up, then it doesn't have to go as far. The post is already helping him, so then his range is a more like normal kind of thing. Exactly. So I know that we're uh, we're in an audio podcast, but I'll show you through, since we were in video. I don't know if you can see this elevation right here. Yep. Mm -hmm. So that would be what would be required in an orthotic like that. And that's right, right under the MTP joint of the the first toe. Yeah, it lifts up the the first MTP, and the uh, it, it doesn't go that far up into the proximal phalange. It uh, you know it's just basically lifting the joint here, mm -hmm. and allows the distal phalange to be a little bit lower, so it, it kind of makes it it changes the functional range of motion of the joint. Oh, okay, gotcha. Mm -hmm. So when it it can extend. Well, um, I, we've tackled a lot, and I, I actually need to pick your brain about one more thing, um, and it's leg length inequalities. So a lot of times when I, I check these things, I notice their pelvis is off, um, people are amazed and surprised that they actually have a longer leg on one side. Um, people don't realize how actually common this is, and, you know, people have been compensating for it most of their lives, assumingly, uh, especially if it is a structural issue. So where do you stand on, is this something that a lift should be implemented on? Is there, is there a kind of a range where it's okay? How do you feel about that? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, depends on a, a variety of factors. Uh, so, Question number one is how long has that patient been uh, compensating and how much is the compensation for? So I, as a rule of thumb, um, I don't encourage that we correct more than 50% of the actual measured leg length discrepancy. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a, that's a measured like on x-ray, the bone relationship. Um, and, and not, we're not, just so everybody's clear, we're not talking about a functional leg-leg discrepancy which can be adjusted uh, by your work. Um, so if you can do manipulations and adjust them and after your adjustment they're back to uh, a, a straighter, uh, more equal uh, pelvic height, um, then I don't believe that there should be an adjustment within the orthotic at that point. For sure. Um, if if the uh, leg length uh, inequality is actually structural, um, then there will be likely some benefits into uh, increasing the the, the, the the height of the shorter leg by up to fifty percent. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. So depending on how sort of um, severe the condition is. Like I've had to, I've, I've seen, I mean, post-surgery uh, patients that have been, you know, completely destroyed ankle and they're locked in a, a inverted plantar flex type stance on one leg. Yeah. I mean, yeah, creating so. severe uh, leg length uh, discrepancy. So in, in that case, it, it, there's no way that it can be done with an, an orthotic alone. We're talking about 
severe shoe modifications and then just trying to adjust for something that's going to feel somewhat equal to the patient. Um, so, but for somebody that has like, you know, uh, tight hip flexion on one side or some, something that, that, that pulls the hip up on more on one side than the other uh, because of there's a dominant side and then after your adjustment, they straighten. Mm -hmm. the, the max I would do for that patient um, is uh, probably try an external uh, heel lift and then slide it underneath the orthotic mm. and see if uh, we get relief, temporarily relief, temporarily as things balance out through the treatment plan. Yeah, right. So then, then that way, as everything gets stronger, they no longer need the heel lift because those muscles are more in balance and they don't have that leg length discrepancy anymore. That's right. Gotcha. Yeah. So yeah. clearly it's a complex thing and yeah. that's why we, that's why we need the specialist for it. That's right. Um, and for our listeners, like structural or anatomical leg length inequality is like you literally have longer bones on one side Yes. where this issue can arise where you just have tightness and muscles on one side, your, pel your body is shifted, your pelvis is shifted and that results in a differing leg length that isn't necessarily baked into your bone structure. Um, anyways, I'm super glad. I know this is probably a, a hard podcast for a lot of people to follow, but an incredibly interesting one. And I hope uh, listeners were able to take away some key um, information about it. Um, very complex structure of the foot. So I'm glad you were able to break this down for all of us. I found this incredibly interesting. Yeah, I'm a huge anatomy nerd, so I like I love talking about all this stuff. Like, absolutely love it. So, yeah. Awesome. So, any more questions that we got, or that's that's kind of a wrap up. I wanted to get you know if you have any closing words for our listeners, any key takeaway points. Yeah. Key takeaway points. Mm, I wish I would have prepared for that. <laughs> <laughs> well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's cool that we're kind of faced with a role where um, technology and society is moving faster than our bodies can adapt for. And we're trying to mediate that situation, you know, walking on, on cement, wearing shoes, sitting all day. Our body wasn't made for that. And we're trying to mediate you so that, you know, your body can cope with all these changes. Um, That's right. Yeah. 
so thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. And that was just wonderful. Great information for all of us. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. We hope to have, you know, another session at some point here. We'll definitely have to at this Great. point. <laughs> yeah. The restrictions will be left. Uh, I can't wait for the time that I'll be able to uh, tour our affiliated clinics uh, around and, and see everybody. It's going to be great. Yeah, absolutely. We'd love that. Awesome. All right. Take care, my man. Okay. Thank you, guys. We will see ya. Yeah, sounds good.